Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Let's go places. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like, da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like, it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to, like, that's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Hello, world, but specifically Australia. Uh, this is Robert Evans, host of Behind the Bastards, and I just wanted my Australian listeners in particular to know that I stood up for you against Caitlin's cruelty <laughs> just a minute ago. She pronounced the name of your greatest city, uh, Melbourne, Melbourne, like a savage. Yeah, and, I said uh, Melbourne, and then, but yeah. then, okay, well, what about the people who live in Sydney or, or, other cities in Australia. There's one he, city in Australia. Its name is Melbourne, and that's the end of this digression. <laughs> Hello, Caitlin Durante, guest for today's episode. How are you doing? Uh, well, I would be doing better if you would pronounce my last name correctly. Speaking of Shots mispronunciation, fired. Durante. Caitlin yes, Durante. It's Durante. I think we've all learned a lesson about maybe not judging each other because it's impossible to ever know how words are supposed to be said. Yeah, he <laughs> thinks Ariana Grande's name is Ariana Grande, so. You know, Sophie, you've been giving me guff about that one for a while. As it deserves. Mm-hmm. Well, now I'm sad. Don't be sad, Robert. If This we, is part two of our episodes. If we didn't episodes. get to pick on a white man at the beginning of an episode, then, like... What's the point? <laughs> yeah, this is this is a whole episode about I don't know. Yeah, it's wait, part two Sophie, of our border let, patrol uh, series. Let's, let's pass the Bechdel test right now, Sophie. Oh, oh, Caitlin, I I'm really enjoying the bluish shirt you're wearing right now. Oh my gosh! Well, I'm so glad you brought it up because um, you it's it's a Paddington shirt that says migration is not a crime, which is relevant to today's episode. Oh, wow. It, it really is relevant to today's episode. 
that we're it recording. It is, but then I said it Paddington, is. and that that messed I, up I, the Bechdel test. I was like, are we gendering Paddington right now? Because uh, that Paddington have... is a non-binary asexual icon. Yes, so... yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So kind of passed the Bechdel test. Okay, Robert, do you want to host yeah. your show behind the bastards right now? Because <laughs> I, I don't actually know if sorry. we passed the Bechdel test there, but you know what test we did pass is hmm. the writing for many hours about the border patrol test uh yes which is a more important test i think <laughs> so uh you know this one we're splitting up a little bit weirdly uh over the course of two weeks because uh my entire life and schedule has been uh continually thrown into chaos so i do apologize for this one being done a little bit differently than others are done on december 6th 2018, seven-year-old Jacqueline Call crossed the U.S.-Mexico border near a place called Antelope Wells, New Mexico. She was with her father, 29-year-old Neri Call. Both were Kekchi Maya, and they'd lived most of their lives in the Alta Verapaz region of Guatemala. Starving and desperate, she and her family turned themselves into the Border Patrol. When Jacqueline was taken into their custody, she was already beginning to show signs of illness, what would turn out to have been a streptococcal infection. DHS maintains that they conducted an initial screening and that there was no evidence of health issues in the little girl. Jacqueline was placed on a Border Patrol bus, feverish and vomiting from severe dehydration. Eight hours after being taken into custody, she began to suffer seizures. She died the next day. <sighs> Gomez Alonso, age eight, crossed the U.S.-Mexico border sometime around December 18th. He and his father, Augustin, were members of the Chuj people, another Mayan group who came from the Huehuetenango region of Guatemala. Gomez spent six days in Border Patrol custody, shuttled around from New Mexico to El Paso, and then back to New Mexico to be interned in a detention facility named near Alamogordo. He started to show symptoms of sickness on the 24th. He was taken to the hospital, where he was tested for the cold, but not for influenza, which he had. He was given medicine that could not help him and sent back to jail, where he died on Christmas Eve, 2018. Oh, no. Yep. Good, good times. That's awful. Yeah, it's real bad. The deaths of Gomez and Jacqueline were briefly very big news in the United States. It was believed that the two were the first child immigrant deaths in Border Patrol custody since 2010. In 2019, though, it was revealed that another child, Darylin Cordova Val of El Salvador, had actually died back in September 2018 under similar circumstances. The Trump administration received a lot of blame, both for covering this death up to try to influence the midterm elections and for their failure to push DHS to take any meaningful action to stop kids from dying at the border. Three dead children is a tragedy, but their little corpses are actually just the top of an iceberg of dead people, many of them Guatemalan, uh, that we can lay at the feet of Border Patrol agents. And you might be surprised to learn how that whole situation came about. You want to hear about this, Caitlin? You excited? I guess I have to. Also, what colorful language you used in terms of the corpses or the t top of an iceberg? I mean, wow. Yeah. You know, uh, I I think if you're going to talk about dead kids, you should do it with a little bit of panaz, pizzazz, panache. <laughs> um, all right, I'm right. I'm uh, keep going. <laughs> all right, so let's talk about uh, the border patrol and um, in in uh, Central America. We're going to talk about um, something I don't think a lot of people know about because usually, as a rule, when we talk about how bad the border patrol is. We talk about like how mean they are to people who come up to the border, um, mm -hmm. but we don't talk about what a lot of border patrol guys did uh, in the countries that these people are fleeing from before people started fleeing from those countries. So this is mm -hmm. going to be fun. Okay, I'm it's ready. Gonna be, this is going to be a good time for everybody. 
so John P. Longan was a U.S. Border Patrol agent in the 1940s and 50s. He worked near the Mexican border, close to where both Jacqueline and Gomez crossed over. Most sources you find on the matter will note that he had a reputation for violence, but this was not at all uncommon among the men of the Border Patrol, nor is it uncommon now. During Operation Wetback, when the Border Patrol reformed itself into a paramilitary force to wage war on Mexican immigrants, Longan run the patrols, ran the patrol's equivalent of a military intelligence service. Longan's base was an unmarked building near Alameda. He and his men interrogated captured migrants, extracted information, and used it to find and capture other groups of migrants. Few of the men who endured these interrogations ever spoke about it, but a lot of what happened in those cells probably verged on what we'd consider torture. Longan was good at his job, and his performance in Operation Wetback earned him a transfer to the State Department's public safety program. Now, this was, in reality, a CIA operation, geared at providing counterinsurgency training and advice to allied nations combating communist insurgencies. The CIA handpicked a number of Border Patrol agents to travel to places like Venezuela, Thailand, the Dominican Republic, and Guatemala. They particularly liked recruiting guys like Longan because they were likely to speak Spanish. Now, the way the State Department framed this program was training law enforcement. So, uh, yeah, the State Department framed this program as training law enforcement. The reality, though, is that Longan and his fellow Border Patrolmen were sent over to places like Guatemala to create and train death squads. During Operation Wetback, Border Patrol administrators had described their work as fighting back against an invasion. In Guatemala, where Longan arrived in 1965, he was finally able to wage a real war using real weapons. I'm going to quote now from an article in The Nation. Quote, Longan taught local intelligence and police agencies how to create death squads to target political activists, deploying tactics that he had earlier used to capture migrants on the border. He arrived in Guatemala in late 1965, where he put into place a paramilitary unit that, early the next year, would execute what he called Operación Limpieza, or Operation Cleanup. Within three months, this unit had conducted over 80 raids and multiple extrajudicial assassinations, including an action that, over the course of four days, captured, tortured, and executed more than 30 prominent left opposition leaders. The military dumped their bodies into the sea while the government denied any knowledge of their whereabouts. According to Stuart Schrader in his forthcoming Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing, it was common practice during the Cold War to send former Border Patrol agents like Longan to train foreign police through CIA-linked public safety programs, since they were more likely to speak Spanish than agents from other branches of law enforcement. In countries like El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, they did the dirty work that Reagan's envoys said needed doing. Until the early 1970s, the United States, according to a 1974 Los Angeles Times report, was flying its Latin American death squad apprentices up to the Border Patrol Academy in Los Fresnos, Texas, to receive training from CIA instructors in the design, manufacture, and potential use of bombs and incendiary devices. Longin himself, in 1957, clearly described what he thought he was doing at the border. We're fighting a war on a wide battlefront. So that's good. So they're just basically training kill squads they're just yeah. telling people to murder people yeah and they're they're pulling border patrol guys off the line to do some of the training to be like oh you already are good at like tracking down these groups of people who are trying to like facilitate movement of uh, of migrants through the united states you can use those skills to track down political activists except that you know since it's in a foreign country you can just have them brutally murdered by death squads <sighs> And these guys are happy to do it because they want to be murdering people anyway. They just can't quite usually murder people, um, you know, at the border. I mean, they do it a lot anyway, but, like, they have to be a little bit careful. But you don't have to be careful at all in Guatemala. So that's great. Oh, gee whiz. 
Have you ever been to Guatemala, Caitlin? I have not. Have you? It rules. Yeah, it, it, yeah. I spent a lot of time there. It's a great country, beautiful place, uh, completely dysfunctional government. Um, mm-hmm. And you can see like signs of the horrible civil war there all over the place. Just like mm-hmm. you'll cross the street and there'll just be a bunch of guys who are all missing arms and legs. Um, oh. You'll be driving through the middle of nowhere and you'll see like businesses that have been like were shot up decades ago with mortars and stuff. And it. You know, it 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 all kind of descends from this the the series of political conflicts that launch in this period of time, particularly in the early 1980s, um, that are backed by the United States and supported enthusiastically by the Reagan government, and these kind of uh, networks of right wing. Um, murder crews that were trained up and sent out by the CIA and and their buddies in groups like the Border Patrol. Um, huh. This all starts now, and it's cool. It's great, and it's probably it's. I mean, it's refugees from yep these conflicts that are seeking refuge in right up to the today the U.S. Yep. and and then they get here mm-hmm. and they're like, well, sorry, fuck you. We're either going to murder you or um, be yeah. negligent and let we- you die in our custody or send you back to this you know yeah. war torn country you're in. Yeah, if you listen to right-wingers, they'll usually say something like, oh, they should go back to their own country and fix its problems. And the reality is that, like, well, some of them tried to do that, and then we trained death squads to murder them and throw their bodies <sighs> in in rivers and stuff um, right. in the ocean. And um, that's why people are less willing to try to fix problems, because they uh-huh. get killed and so do their children, because of yeah. the guys that we hired and trained to kill them and their children when they attempt to fight for economic justice. Oops. It's good. It's really good is what I'm getting at. So um, uh, Operation Limpieza, which, you know, Longin, the Border Patrol guy, uh, orchestrated himself, was a major moment in the history of Guatemala's collapse uh, into a nightmare. The military intelligence system he helped to build would eventually eliminate tens of thousands of leftist activists, sympathizers, and random people mistaken for either. More than 200,000 people were massacred openly. Tens of thousands more were tortured. In this way, the brave men of the Border Patrol wound up at both sides of a tragedy. The genocide they trained right-wing Guatemalan militants to execute fell heavily on various Maya peoples of the region, including the Kekchi and the Chuj. The right-wing dictator who helped to organize much of this violence was General Efrain Rios Montt. He rose to power in 1981 and 1982, cooing his way into command with the help of his good friends the U.S. Ronald Reagan described him as a man of great integrity who was totally dedicated to democracy. The nation's Uh write-up makes (laughs) continues, quote, On June 17, 1982, Guatemalan soldiers under the command of Rios Montt entered the San Francisco cattle estate immediately adjacent to Yalambolok. The estate's owner, a military colonel, had fled because of guerrilla activity in the area. Soldiers went house by house, rounding up workers and their families, whom they accused of supporting the guerrillas. They separated children from their parents and killed them by slashing their stomachs or smashing their heads against poles. Women were raped and then burned alive. The soldiers killed the men with bullets or by beheading. After a day of slaughter, 350 people were dead. A lone survivor made his way into Mexico, where Guatemalan anthropologist and Jesuit priest Ricardo Fala interviewed him. The San Francisco massacre was highlighted in Guatemala's 1999 Truth Commission report. After the massacre, Yalambalak residents fled along with thousands of others, leaving the border corridor between Guatemala and Mexico completely depopulated as government troops razed their villages. Some were captured and killed by the army as they fled. 
Others ended up in refugee camps or dispersed throughout Mexico's southern states. Still others continued on to the United States, beginning the great movement of Guatemalans to El Norte. In tr- all told, 1.5 million people were displaced by the Guatemalan Army's scorched earth campaign in 1981 and 1982. Guatemala's Commission for Historical Clarification called the violent displacement in the Maya Chuj region an act of genocide. Young Felipe Gomez Alazano's father, he was the little kid, one of the little kids who died, mm-hmm. Augustin Gomez Perez, was a child of 11 during that execute. Yalambalak's villagers stayed away for 14 years, returning only after the signing of the peace accords in 1996. So, that's cool. Mm. What can you say besides yeah. that's horrible? You can say that like we're focusing on Guatemala right here because it's mm-hmm. uh, one where there's a bit more documentation, but like this shit happened in El Salvador. It happened in a bunch of different parts of Latin and Central America mm-hmm. um, where, you know, refugees come from all the time now. Um, it was, mm-hmm. it was, uh, it, it, it's still in a lot of ways going on today. If you want to read about like Plan Colombia and stuff, like there's aspects of this that are very much still occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the border patrol still winds up getting tied up and uh, from time to time. And that's great. Oh, good grief. Yeah. I... This is like the stuff that part of me that like is optimistic wants to believe that, Oh, if people just knew this, like knew, how this all how how US policy and 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 US um plotting uh played into the tragedy being suffered by these people and like the insecurity of these regions mm-hmm. they would have better attitudes towards you know Guatemalan migration and whatnot uh, into the United States and then the part of me that that has been paying attention for the last several decades knows that like no actually um people would cheer the murders of the folks and the destruction of these areas because um Americans have been so thoroughly broken by propaganda that the people who are still on the right and still broadly pro-American um, can't be convinced uh, by any reason that any amount of murder or violence is uh, not justified by the fact that America is cool as hell. <laughs> it is this, oh, what a toxic mentality that we as Americans, or at least some of us have, because like and this is i'm not about to say anything new or profound here but the fact that uh you know the white european settlers were escaping the same you know kind of civil unrest or religious persecution or whatever it was that caused them to flood their countries and uh then and then we settled here uh by killing millions of indigenous people and now we're like well our borders are closed now uh sorry everyone and it's like how how can you live how can these people live with the hypocrisy of that simple fact um because they sh- they're they're shit anyway they're shit <laughs> uh so most of these death squads um were trained in the United States because, like, hey, if you're going to build a death squad for a foreign country, you don't want to, like, train it there. Um, that's kind of gauche. Uh, so you bring them into your country to train them there because you're, 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 you know, you're good at training death squads. 
So the the facility where they actually trained a lot of these death squads, and again, not just in Guatemala, but for places like Colombia and El Salvador, all throughout the fucking uh, world, the place where they would like take these men to teach them how to be terrorists, uh, how to make bombs and all this shit, uh, was the Los Fresnos, Texas Border Patrol facility. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an existing base. It was in a good location. Um, and the Border Patrol was perfectly happy to have men sent over there to learn how to become murderous guerrillas and then set off terrorist bombs in the middle of their own countries because um, they were like, that sounds like a thing the Border Patrol should be involved with. Now, the technical investigations course that was given to foreign police there was taught by CIA instructors. Uh, it lasted four weeks, and it included curriculum like terrorist concepts, terrorist devices, fabrication and functioning of devices, improvised triggering devices, incendiaries, and assassination weapons, a discussion of various weapons which may be used by the assassin. And when you read it like that, you can kind of trick yourself into thinking it might not be like, like it might be a reasonable thing for cops to learn, right? Of course, cops might need to learn about terrorist concepts and the kind of weapons assassins use. But these were not just informational courses. They were instructed. So the police who attended weren't just learning, oh, here's weapons that assassins sometimes use. They were learning like, if you're going to assassinate somebody, here's a variety of different weapons that you can use to assassinate (laughs) people. They were just learning like, here's different ways terrorists build triggers for bombs. They were learning, here's how to build triggers for the bombs you're going to make to kill people. Um... The the reality of the uh, the whole the whole program came out during congressional investigations in the 1970s, and I'm going to quote now from a book titled "Instruments Instruments of Statecraft: U.S. Guerrilla Warfare, Counterinsurgency, and Counterterrorism," which is available for in full for free online right now. Quote: During congressional investigations led by Senator James Alberesque uh, in 1973, eight officials admitted that the Los Fresnos sessions, what the press would call the bomb school, offered lessons not in bomb disposal but in bomb making. The course is not designed to, nor does it prepare the student to be a bomber explosive disposal technician. The thrust of the instruction introduces trainees to commercially available materials and home laboratory techniques in the manufacture of explosives and incendiaries. Different types of explosive techniques and booby traps and their construction and use by terrorists are demonstrated. And again, all these classes were taught at a border patrol facility. And while the main instructors were CIA agents, it was not just the convenient location that made the agency use Los Fresnos. The border patrol had always had within it the seeds of a national secret police force. Decades before CBP agents were operating in unmarked snatch vans on the streets of Portland, and it was Customs and Border Patrol who was doing that, Mm -hmm. um, they helped to train foreign police to do the exact same thing and much worse besides. So that's fun. Very, very. I keep like wanting to say like ah what a fun thing what a because i don't know what else to say it's just like this right kind of litany of horrors that we've all just kind of blithely funded our entire lives even though a great deal of information exists on how bad this agency has always been mm-hmm. um because the only real if you actually like get into it as we are today the only real conclusion is that like oh maybe when you have um people whose job it is to police the border they're 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 just going to be the worst people and and maybe you shouldn't police the border at all uh, because this happened. But maybe I'm sure border, that, borders are completely arbitrary and yeah. mean nothing. And why are why have we decided that they that crossing them is a crime? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's bad. And the kind of people who decide that like they want to make their whole lives about punishing desperate people for the quote unquote crime of crossing a border. Uh, are, are are monsters, and when you start giving them guns and power, 
uh, they use it to uh, enable genocides and political oppression abroad and then inevitably do so back at home, uh, which is what's happening now. So when it comes to government agencies that Americans, particularly liberals, rage against, Customs and Border Patrol has spent most of its history kind of sliding under the mainstream radar. But liberals who only started paying attention to the agency after Trump took office might be surprised to know that NYT reporter or New York Times reporter John Crudson won a Pulitzer Prize in 1980 for a series of articles about the Border Patrol whose titles would not look at all out of place in 2020. Titles like Border Patrol Sweeps of Illegal Aliens Leave Scores of children in jails um it sounds a little familiar uh the intercept summarizing his work notes patrollers he reported regularly engaged in beatings murder torture and rape including the rape of girls as young as 12 some patrollers ran their own in-house outlaw vigilante groups others maintained ties with groups like the clan border patrol agents also used the children of migrants either as bait or as pressure a pressure tactic to force confessions when coming upon a family agents tried to apprehend the youngest member first with the idea that relatives would give themselves up so as not to be separated It may sound cruel, one patroller said, but it often worked. Separating migrant families was not official government policy in the years Crudson was reporting on abuses, but left to their own devices, Border Patrol agents regularly took children from parents, threatening that they would be separated forever unless one of them confessed that they had entered the country illegally. Mothers especially, an agent said, would always break. Once a confession was extracted, children might be placed in foster care or left to languish in federal jails. Others were released into Mexico alone, far from their homes, forced to survive, according to public defenders, by garbage can scrounging, living on rooftops, and whatever. Ten-year-old Sylvia Alvarado, separated from her grandmother as they crossed into Texas, was kept in a small cinder block cell for more than three months. In California, 13-year-old Julia Perez, threatened with being arrested and denied food, broke down and told her investigator that she was Mexican, even though she was a U.S. citizen. The Border Patrol released Perez into Mexico with no money or way to contact her U.S. family. Such cruelties weren't one-offs, but part of a pattern, encouraged and committed by officers up the chain of command. The violence was both gratuitous and systemic, including stress techniques later associated with the war in Iraq. I mean, wow. <laughs> what kind of truly inhuman monster do you have to be to, join to the use tr- to be yes and more specifically to use children as bait or to like snatch them first as j- just like I can't even form a sentence. That is... Yeah, it's not great. I mean, the sentence that that you said, like, I got teary-eyed. The the mothers mothers broke first or what? Yeah, yeah, that was horrible. No, it's... um, I don't know. You know, when I talk about how this all actually makes me feel, there's no way to do that without repeatedly urging other people to commit federal crimes. Um... Uh, uh, up to and including assault and murder. So I'm just like going to stop right there and continue talking about the Border Patrol instead Um, because we shouldn't do that on a podcast. One tactic the Border Patrol came to adore was the locking of migrants in freezing cold rooms called hilleras or ice boxes. This goes back at least to the 1980s, according to Crudson. 
agents would tell prisoners, in this place, you have no rights. Since these people had committed no crime beyond crossing a line in the dirt, their detention served no real purpose beyond cruelty. Cruelty was the point. Border Patrol agents throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s were repeatedly documented torturing migrants. A popular method was handcuffing them to squad cars and then making them run alongside the video as it half-dragged them to the border. Outright murder was common as well. One patrol agent told Crudson that agents commonly pushed illegals off cliffs so it would look like an accident. Much of the agency's behavior was indistinguishable from that of a straight-up gang. Agents with INS, Border Patrol's parent agency at the time, were caught trading Mexican women to the Los Angeles Rams in exchange for season tickets. What? (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing that happened. Yeah. I can't. Brave men and women of the Border Patrol, wearing the green. Oh my god, it's time for an ad break so that I can go vomit. Yeah, you know who doesn't trade women for... You can't even do sports it. Tickets. Vomit, vomit, vomit. It's an ad. Yeah, it's, no. an ad it's an ad break. Oh. Products and services. Across America, BP supports more than two hundred and seventy-five thousand jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if people have learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. Mint Mobile wireless plans are 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You think... What's the catch? But there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone and bring your own phone number along with your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash behind. That's mintmobile.com slash behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com. Dot com slash behind. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very slow. all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. (laughs) Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. There's plenty to celebrate in March and craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free and we're back uh we're having a good time mm-hmm. <laughs> Jesus. so 
INS agents were also caught supplying Mexican prostitutes to congressmen and judges in exchange for political favors. Over time, the Border Patrol found ways to get over their longstanding conflicts with uh, with Texan ranchers. In numerous cases, they worked out deals with ranch owners, whereby they would hold off on immigration raids until right before payday, giving ranchers the use of migrant bodies without the need to pay them. Border Patrol men got to hunt and fish for free on their ranches as payments. So this is kind of how they they worked out that that little set of disagreements, that little uh, the, the 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 uprising in Texas that had been sparked by so a, they would a lot exploit of this. the labor and and then yeah. have an agreement with the border patrol and be like okay seize them on this day yeah so, so that I don't have to pay, have to pay the, oh my god it's good yeah uh, Crudson that New York Times journalist even documented that one of the range the ranches border patrol worked at an arrangement with was owned by President Lyndon B Johnson while he was president. Uh, oh, <laughs> holy shit. Good stuff. Between 1985 and 1990, federal agents gunned down 22 migrants just in the area around San Diego. The Intercept reports, quote, on April 18th, 1986, for instance, patroller Edward Cole was beating 14-year-old Eduardo Carrillo Estrada on the U.S. side of the border's chain link fence when he stopped and shot Eduardo's younger brother, Humberto, in the back. Humberto was standing on the other side of the fence on Mexican soil. A court ruled that Cole, who had previous incidents of shooting through the fence at Mexicans, had reason to fear for his life from Humberto and used justifiable force. Such abuses persisted through the 1990s and 2000s. In 1993, the House Subcommittee on International Law, Immigration, and Refugees held hearings on Border Patrol abuse, and its transcript is a catalog of horrors. One former guard, Tony Hefner, at the INS Detention Center in Port Isabel, Texas, reported that a young Salvadoran girl was forced to perform personal duties like dancing the lambada for INS officials. In 2011, Hefner published a memoir with more accusations of sexual abuse by, as Hefner writes, the INS Brass. Roberto Martinez, who worked with the San Diego-based U.S.-Mexico border program for the American Friends Service Committee, testified that human and civil rights violations by the Border Patrol run the gamut of abuses imaginable, from rape to murder. Agents regularly seized original birth certificates and green cards from Latino citizens, leaving the victim with the financial burden of having to go through a lengthy process of applying for a new document. Rapes and sexual abuse in INS detention centers around the United States, Martinez said, seem to be escalating throughout the border region. Okay, I have to talk through something here. So, sure. in theory, law enforcement yeah. is there to prevent crime, stop crime, find criminals, etc. We know that that's barely what they do, right? But that's in theory the the purpose of law enforcement and so by by extension border patrol if it is for it, since it is for some reason illegal to you know cross a border undocumented or without the proper documentation that is quote a crime according to ridiculous standards right and i also understand in theory the concept of like punishing things that are actual crime. That makes sense to me as long as it's done responsibly, which it never is. The idea of seeing crossing a border without the proper documentation and deciding that the punishment for that crime warrants things like human trafficking, murder, sexual assault, uh all manner of other horrible, horrible, unmentionable things like where mm, I just it is the most disgusting thing. I 
I, I think the problem here that you're having is in thinking that the goal, the purpose is ever to prevent crime, um, whereas the reality is the purpose is to um, is to protect it's to protect whiteness. Um, exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and and it's to provide an outlet for um, for fascists in this country to do horrible violence on people um, in a way that is uh, rather than being disorganized and sort of uh, uh, being anti-state and being something that like causes disorder being um, s- s- violence that they are allowed to carry out that um, that enforces the uh, 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 the the kind of the, the state itself that like that like backs up the existence of the state. Um, right. Like you have all these you have all these tremendously violent people. Right. Um, and you can do a couple of things to them, um, but they're there. Uh, so either you you try to, like, deal with them and, and de-radicalize them and make them less dangerous. You kill them or as we do, you give them guns and make them unaccountable and allow them to to do horrible violence to large groups of people who have no political agency. Yes, that is exactly what it is. It's like people who are like, well, the general population thinks that, you know, being a member of a a hate group like the KKK is bad. So I'm going to do the same exact things that the KKK does, but it's being masked as a government agency. Like basically this terror terrorist organization, this hate group is protected and quote justified because it is a government agency even though they're they're committing the same heinous acts in the name of under the guise of some kind of protection but truly it, it it's the like you said protection of of whiteness and criminalizing being not white and yeah, it's and that's the that's the heinous. only way it's ever been, um, yes. and that's the only way it ever will be as long as we have a border, um, and we consider there to be some sort of fundamental value in um, the sanctity of that border, right? Um, and that's good. I want to cry about it. Yeah, it's it's good to do that sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. Other times, it's good to continue reading a podcast script. Yes, <laughs> which I will now do. Okay. Because this is how I deal with problems. Mm-hmm. This is the only way that I deal with problems, uh, is by reading podcast scripts. I mean, informing so, informing the, 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 the people helps. Yeah, that's, that's a way that you can describe this, is informing the people. I don't know. You know, um, in 1979, Maria Contreras, nine months pregnant, crossed back into the United States from Mexico legally after shopping for food. Border Patrol agents found this suspicious, and they tortured her to try to get her to reveal information about undocumented migrants. She died under interrogation, leaving six <gasps> children behind. Um, this sort of thing happened all the time. You know, we have documentation about Maria Contreras's case, but this is maybe even a daily uh, matter. And it's something that continues to this day um, in dark and terrifying corners of the border where such things are not uh, documented most of the time, mm-hmm. but which we all pay for. Throughout all of this, the Border Patrol and INS were sort of the redheaded stepchild of federal agencies with law enforcement powers. They were barely funded because, if you can imagine this, illegal immigration was not something people cared about. So for most of these period, this period, while all of the horrible things we've been talking about have been happening, Border Patrol has basically no money. 
Um, and very few agents, considering like what it's supposed to be watching in its purview. It's just kind of a place where we keep all of our most violent law enforcement officers, and they don't have the money to do much, um, mm-hmm. but nobody's watching them, so they can carry out horrific acts of violence. And that's the Border Patrol and really INS, too, um, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, border states probably had, you know, not probably, border states had debates on the matter of illegal immigration. It was certainly like, you know, a political issue in Texas and in New Mexico and stuff. Uh, but random people in Duluth, random Americans in Duluth or, you know, Wichita or Bumblefuck, Montana or whatever, didn't really care about the border, right? 80s and 90s, it was not a, a big vote getter for most of that period of time. Now, at the start of the Clinton administration, there were only about 4,000 border patrol agents watching both Canada and Mexico. Mexico, um, which is not a lot if you think about how big both of those borders are. They're many miles long. Yeah, they're pretty big. In 1993, NAFTA became a thing, the North American Free Trade thingamajigger. Uh, and illegal yeah. immigration grew by leaps and bounds, uh, alongside right-wing fear-mongering about illegal immigration. The Border Patrol more than doubled in size by the turn of the millennium. So this is like the first thing that really leads to a massive surge in the Border Patrol, is NAFTA becomes a thing, and suddenly a shitload more people are trying to cross the border. Uh, illegal immigration by the end of the 1990s is a major national political issue, and the Border Patrol more than doubles under Clinton. Uh, In the year 2000, our nation's peak year for illegal immigration, Border Patrol agents apprehended 1.6 million people. Uh, This, though, was just a fraction of the total that got through. Border Patrol agents were unhappy about the fact that most uh, undocumented migrants were still getting through the border, and and that there were many rules in place to stop them from, you know, doing Operation Wetback type stuff and basically Mm -hmm. carrying out an ethnic cleansing to get rid of uh, non-white people from border areas. Uh, From an article in Politico, quote, near the top of the Border Patrol's list of complaints was the policy known internally as CARP, or the Catch and Release Policy. By the end of the Clinton administration, 80% of people who were caught and released with a notice to appear at a deportation hearing never showed up in court. But despite millions of border crossings, the Border Patrol had the financing in 2001 for just 60 detainees a day across the entire country. They could turn themselves in and have a high confidence that they wouldn't be returned to their home countries, recalls Michael Chertoff, who would go on to become President George W. Bush's second second Secretary of Homeland Security. Mostly agents just asked border violators for their names and then did a cursory background check before returning them to Mexico or releasing them into the United States. Sometimes they ran fingerprints, sometimes they didn't. In June 1999, agents captured one of the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives, a rapist and serial killer named Angel Maturino Resendez, a.k.a. the Railway Killer, and unknowingly released him back into Mexico, whereupon Resendez promptly sneaked back into the United States and murdered four more people before being apprehended by Texas Rangers. So... The story of the railway killer was, of course, used to justify the need for more funding to the Border Patrol. Mm-hmm. What the whole story really illustrates is that even when the Border Patrol had occasional chances to actually protect Americans by apprehending people, they were as likely to fuck up as anything because most of them were shit-ass incompetent in anything besides doing violence. Mm-hmm. So, 9-11 happens. Do you remember 9-11? I remember... It's good. You're not supposed to forget it. Now, 9-11 happens, and uh, if you were alive and cognizant at the time, you might remember that basically everybody and their grandma was obsessed with the imminent possibility that al-Qaeda might drive a regiment of terrorist nuclear tanks or whatever across the Texas border. As someone who lived in Texas at the time, there were a bunch of people freaking out about how like terrorist hit squads were going to be making their way up through the border. Kids at my like suburban Texas high school were certain that al-Qaeda was going to be sending people to shoot up our school 
because like Plano, Texas was real high on fucking Osama bin Laden's hit list. <laughs> Wait, did they think they were going to like go to Mexico first and then cross the border? Is yeah, that what they thought? Yeah. It didn't <laughs> it didn't really scan a lot. I mean, I I'll say this. I think that uh, it's maybe not talked about enough the degree to which guys like John Milnius and movies like Red Dawn prepared everybody to believe the bullshit the Bush administration said about how terrorists were going to be sneaking through the border. Um, but like, yeah, whatever. Um, it was very dumb. It was a very dumb time. But also like, you know, a bunch of guys had worked together to ram planes into the Pentagon and destroy two skyscrapers in New York City. People were willing to believe a lot of terrible things were possible. And because the sure. border... You know, right wing um, pundits had been convincing everybody that the border was this dangerous and and unmonitored place for so long. People were like, oh, my God, of course, the terrorists will try there. They never did. Um, but, you know, no. they still might any day now, Caitlin, any day. Al Qaeda's got to finally mm. get a squad up there. Nobody will notice all of the. Anyway, whatever. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Tom Ridge, the former governor of Pennsylvania, was made President Bush's Homeland Security czar. Now, this was before the Department of Homeland Security existed. That came about in, like, November of 2002. Mm -hmm. um, but as soon as, like, 9-11 is a thing, Bush is like, oh, we got to have somebody whose job is to think about safety for the country, which, like, there were already a bunch of people doing that, and it hadn't helped. <laughs> And but anyway, whatever. Right. Um, so Tom Ridge is like is made the the czar of homeland security, uh, and he made border control one of his priorities. Uh, he realized pretty much immediately that the border patrol was going to be an issue for him. Robert Bonner, who worked with Ridge and later became the first head of customs and border patrol, told Politico, "Quote." Within the INS structure, they were the poor stepchild. That was how most of INS viewed them at every level. They weren't appreciated and weren't viewed with respect, and that created this defensiveness and insularity within the Border Patrol. There was a lot of debate about what to do with the organization and whether or not to just take all the different groups that handled various border-related things and merge them into one border agency. But that would have meant several different cabinet secretaries would have each lost tiny amounts of power and money because, you know, you have this group that's like, you know, your, your job is to look for war criminals who might have, like, accidentally gotten citizenship or green cards. You have this other group whose job is to, like, you know, handle customs enforcement. You know, you have the Border Patrol. You have, like, uh, the group that's job is to go around and look for people who might be violating immigration law. You have all these different groups mm -hmm. that are like under different sort of people's purview and putting them all in one like organized border patrol that does everything would have meant that all of the different cabinet secretaries lost a little bit of money and power. So they all vetoed that idea that. in unison. No, 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 no. Fuck that shit. Um, instead, the decision was made to dissolve INS and put the Border Patrol under the purview of the new Customs and Border Patrol, which would itself be part of the brand new Department of Homeland Security. The final nail in INS's coffin was the fact that the agency had uh, approved visas for two of the 9-11 hijackers after 9-11. Um, so this oh. is kind of what like, yeah, that's the that's the wrong time to do that. <laughs> Somebody probably should have like gotten on the phone immediately after that and been like, hey, you, we should run these names. Like, just make sure we're not going to embarrass everybody. Mm -hmm. But they did. Um, and when the news kind of came out that INS had approved visas for two of the people who had just carried out the biggest terrorist attack in the U.S. history, the Bush administration was really not happy with INS. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind, of, that kind of spelled their doom. Uh, and in fact, when they dissolved the agency, no one from the White House even thought to call the INS commissioner and tell him. Um, uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to quote again from Politico's article. 
INS was such a broken bureaucracy that it would be the single agency in the entire U.S. government to receive the ultimate death penalty after 9-11 in the wide-ranging bureaucratic reorganization that led to the Department of Homeland Security. INS was completely disbanded. Its responsibilities removed from the Justice Department, and its duties reassigned among three new DHS agencies, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, Citizenship and Immigration Services, CIS, and Customs and Border Protection, CBP, and the newly created DHS would be a reality in less than a year. So that's the situation. Hmm. Um, Now, the man tasked with creating the CBP was Robert Bonner, a federal judge and a former DEA head. His first and most pressing decision was whether or not to change the agency's famous green uniform, which is obviously more important than, like, the rapes, (sighs) the trading of women for sports tickets and stuff. Why is that the first order of business? Why are there any orders of business? Look, Caitlin, these brave men of the Border Patrol who only Mm. occasionally commit mass rape and sex trafficking that includes sex trafficking of 12-year-olds and only occasionally torture pregnant women to death, those brave men have a lot of pride in their uniform and they want to know that that uniform's not going to change. You know, they have to be presentable. That's Mm -hmm. the most... That's the important most important thing. thing. The most important thing is that they they get to still feel like they're part of the part of the old border patrol that they love. You know, the old mm. border patrol that lets them torture all those people and throw kids into into to dank freezing cells for months on end, many of whom are actually American citizens. <laughs> That's just how it's it's important, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, from Politico, quote, weeks before the new agency officially launched on March 1st, 2003, he invited all of the Border Patrol's 20 sector chiefs to Washington to discuss the transition. They all arrived in D.C. in full dress green uniforms, shoes polished, brass buttons gleaming. As Bonner walked into the room, everyone stood and snapped to attention. The new commissioner began his remarks simply, the Border Patrol will remain green. The room erupted in applause and cheers. They're proud of the green. They were very proud of that uniform, Bonner recalls today. They were concerned about losing that identity. Ew. (laughs) Who cares about your green uniform? Oh, the Border Patrol cares. Fuck off and... (laughs) Fucking losers. Mm. See, this is why, as as I've always said, uh, and Sophie can back me up on this, Caitlin, you would be a terrible head of the Border Patrol. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because I don't respect the green... Exactly. Well, I don't even. You don't understand I don't, how I don't wear this green, is. but it's because I hate the Celtics. So I couldn't have a yeah. job either. Okay. Yeah. See, um, Sophie, you'd be bad at this Boston too because, as no a Border reason? Patrol agent, you should be trading kidnapped women to the Celtics in exchange for season tickets. <laughs> oh my God! Can we just go to an ad break? Jesus Christ! <laughs> Speaking oh of God. the Celtics, you know who else supports this podcast? Hey, hey, hey! You know who else is whore? Nope. Nope. Yep. Nope. Products and services. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Hey guys, Mario Lopez here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit biotoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. And we're back. That that oh. that Celtics dig. Uh, I just would like to to denote that uh, I will keep doing that, and also high prop. Yeah, it's uh, um. that, that, I don't understand who the Celtics are. Celtics, I don't understand any of this. This is I, all Sophie's fault. If you love enemies. that team, if you love that team, send your death threats to Sophie. Yeah, if you love me. that, if you love that team, just unfollow me because mm-hmm. we will never wow. be friends. Also, because I don't know also, who they once are. Again, high prop soccer. If you if you don't give a shit about any Highlight? sports teams in existence, tennis fo- maybe. Follow me. Yeah, except d- for soccer. Soccer is allowed. Soccer is cool. Soccer is the only sport. No, soccer is definitely not allowed. What soccer? Soccer is allowed. There is there is one sport allowed in my ideal world, and it's that that game they play in Afghanistan where they all ride around on horseback with a goat head and people get killed sometimes because they, it's, it's yeah. That's you just, you just not... fully Roberted this entire thing. Uh, anyways, <laughs> follow Caitlin on Twitter and Instagram. She's a great follow. Continue with your podcast. And go to Afghanistan to play sports. Anyway, uh, they were not particularly concerned, the Border Patrol, with making any changes to reduce the number of migrants killed by Border Patrol agents. Uh, since 2003, Border Patrol agents have killed at least 97 people. Six of those people were children. They've also taken repeated action to stop other people from saving lives. As summers grew more brutal, more and more migrants started dying in the Sonoran Desert. In 2004, the faith-based organization No More Deaths started leaving gallon jugs of water out near common footpaths in the desperate hope that it might stop a few people from dying horribly in the desert. They soon noticed that their water bottles were being slashed open. No More Deaths set up hidden cameras. They found, in every case, Border Patrol agents destroying water caches, almost with visible glee. You can see one of these videos for yourself in the PBS documentary Need to Know. Salon.com's description is quite good. Quote, 
Three Border Patrol agents, two men and a woman, are walking along a migrant trail and approaching a half, half a dozen one-gallon jugs of water. The female agent stops in front of the containers and begins to kick them with force down a ravine. The bottles crash against rocks, bursting open. She's smiling. One of the agents watching her smiles as well, seeming to take real pleasure in the spectacle. He says something under his breath, and the word tonk is clearly audible. Do you know what tonk means? I don't. So we talked about wetback in episode one and how mm-hmm. that was the Border Patrol's kind of old term for for uh, particularly Mexican immigrants because right. of the, the river they have to cross. Mm-hmm. Tonk is uh, new, the new slur that the Border Patrol uses for undocumented immigrants. And Ooh. it comes from the sound that a flashlight makes when you hit someone in the head. Oh, my God. <laughs> You'll hear this if in any article you read about the modern border patrol that, that that they the word tonk is like their their standard term for for migrants and it's a term because of what it sounds like when they beat these people with flashlights. Well, <laughs> mm, okay, let me just process that. <laughs> New slurs were, of course, course, far from the only changes to hit Border Patrol during the Bush years. By the time President Obama took office, the Border Patrol had gone from an underfunded force of about 9,000 to a 21,000-person army, the largest federal law enforcement agency in the country. Um, There are actual armies smaller than the Border Patrol and less Mm. well-equipped. They're the largest law enforcement agency in the country now. Um, So that's good. All those new officers had to be trained up quick, and this did not leave time for rigorous vetting and background checking that other federal agents go through. Border Patrol agents today still have the least average years of experience of any federal law enforcement agency. They also have the lowest standards for new recruits. This may have something to do with the fact that Border Patrol agents are involved in more fatal shootings than any other federal law enforcement agency. Uh, Yeah. You know, probably. Uh, It's not like any federal law enforcement agency is good about giving us numbers about how many people they shoot, but probably they kill more than any of the others. Okay, I believe it. Yeah. One senior DHS official even admitted to Politico, quote, the agency has created a culture that says, if you throw a rock at me, you're going to get shot. Between 2005 and 2012, roughly one CBP officer was arrested for misconduct every single day. During President Obama's first term, things got so bad that DHS Secretary Janet Napolitano ordered the CBP to change its institutional definition of the word corruption so they wouldn't have to admit to as many problems when they were questioned by Congress about all of the murders. It's pretty, yeah. <laughs> wow. Again, what under a Obama. Workaround. Under Obama. Yeah. It's pretty much impossible. No, I just... uh, Yeah. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Like, we're not even really going to get into the Trump years in this two-parter, because that's like a whole nother thing to start talking about. Yeah. Like, most of this that we're talking about today, I mean, it's Reagan, uh, Bush Sr., Clinton, Bush Jr., and Obama, right? Those are the guys that this is happening under. Those are the guys funding this, right? Enthusiastically. All of the politicians that everybody thinks are fine now because Trump is, is such a sh- such a dick. Anyway, um, yeah, it's pretty much impossible to exaggerate how bad uh, Border Patrol uh, is and was. Uh, like, mm-hmm. I'm going to guess that most of our listeners come from a bo- broad position that, like, feds are not good, um, which is fine and accurate. But even among that company, like, even if you're like, oh, federal agents are pretty much all bad, it's shocking how bad the agents of the CBP are. Like, it's, mm-hmm. like, it, it's, it's, staggering how shitty they they particularly become in the aughts. Uh, And I'm going to quote from Salon again. 
There was my there was the Miami CBP officer who used his law enforcement status to bypass airport security and personally smuggle cocaine and heroin into Miami. There was the green uniformed agent in Yuma, Arizona, who was caught smuggling 700 pounds of marijuana across the border in his green and white Border Patrol truck. The brand new 26-year-old Border Patrol agent who joined a drug smuggling operation to distribute more than 1,000 kilograms of marijuana in Del Rio, Texas. The 32-year-old Border Patrol agent whose wife would tip him off on which buses filled with illegal immigrants uh, to let through his checkpoint on I-35 in Laredo, Texas. Some cases were more obvious than others, like the new Border Patrol agent who took an unusual interest in maps of the agency's sensors along the border and was arrested just seven months into the job after he sold smugglers those maps for $5,500. In November 2007, CBP official Thomas Winkowski wrote an agency-wide memo citing numerous incidents, or as he called them, disturbing events, saying that the leadership was concerned about the increase in the number of employee arrests. The memo, never made public but obtained by the Miami Herald, reminded officers and agents, it is our responsibility to uphold the laws, not break the law. Now, right around that time, internal CBP investigations uncovered that the agency had, in dozens of cases, hired members of Mexican drug cartels and gangs like MS-13 to be agents. They'd also hired at least one serial killer, Juan David Ortiz, who murdered five women during his time as an intelligence analyst for the agency. He is also suspected of kidnapping a woman. We'll never really know the exact extent of his crimes. And in that regard, he fits in with another Border Patrol veteran, Esteban Manzanares. It is possible that Esteban Manzanares was not a serial killer. He hasn't been convicted of any murders, but he was caught abducting three migrant women, a mother and her two teenage daughters. He attempted to bury one alive, and he (gasps) raped another. Uh, And yeah, earlier this year, an appeals court ruled that his victims could not sue the federal government as Manzanares was not acting in his official capacity as a Border Patrol agent when he assaulted those women. Sure, he arrested them during his duties as a Border Patrol agent, and he took them to a Border Patrol processing facility before taking them to a gated compound to assault them. Them, but he wasn't he wasn't acting as a border patrol agent. Oh wow, the mental gymnastics <laughs> that people do. Just legal ones. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, the good news is that a few bad apples like Manzanares and Ortiz and also all of the thousands of agents uh, who got arrested on a nearly daily basis for seven straight years didn't stop the orchard from detaining more migrants than ever before. During the Obama years, DHS deported more undocumented migrants than ever, 400,000 a year. As President Obama said in 2011, the presence of so many illegal immigrants make a mockery of all those who are trying to immigrate legally. Now, yeah, that's good. Obama. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool what a problem this was. Uh, Yeah, so, and again, all of these illegal immigrants make a mockery of everyone trying to immigrate illegally. The the data shows that during this period, this like fucking seven-year period, an average of one Border Patrol agent per day almost was arrested for serious crimes, like ranging from like rape and sexual assault to attempted murder um, to, you know, drug smuggling. Like every day, a Border Patrol agent basically <laughs> was getting arrested during the, the these years. But that's not, that's not making a mockery of like... Right, right law enforcement or whatever yeah yeah now there were a number of reasons why things got so bad in border patrol we've talked about some of them just sort of like the inherent racist nature of of the the existence of the border patrol Mm -hmm. um but there are also just sort of some um uh some reasons that you would describe as kind of broadly uh 
bureaucratic. There were a bunch of bureaucratic reasons why it happened mm-hmm. too, right? Kind of outside of the inherent, you know, problems of of policing a border. Sure. Um, for one point, like they were increasing the size of the border patrol faster than any law enforcement agency had ever been increased. Um, mm-hmm. And that meant bringing in a shitload of people who weren't qualified. Um, they had all of this money and they did not have enough people who could actually responsibly do the job. So they were just throwing people in chairs and giving them guns and badges. Um <laughs> Now, the issues of hiring a bunch of people for an agency based on assaulting non-white people um, and giving them, you know, broad uh, powers were compounded by structural problems uh, within the – like the way the Border Patrol was set up. Most Border Patrol men are agents. Um, This differs from special agents, which are the cool dudes like Fox Mulder that everyone who becomes a Fed wants to be. Mm. Special agents can both arrest people and investigate crimes. Agents only have arresting powers. They cannot investigate crimes. Crimes. Mm-hmm. Now, because CBP is seen as the shittiest federal law enforcement agency, the dumping ground for all of the violent assholes, our mm-hmm. government doesn't like to make them special agents. According to Politico, quote, in many ways, the difference between the two is CBP's original sin, a seemingly minor technical distinction made in the harried heat of DHS creation a decade ago that would allow hundreds of cases of corruption in CBP's Office of Field Operations and Use of Force Abuses in the patrol- Border Patrol to fester for years. The problem was that no one at CBP received what's known as 1811 authority. When DHS was set up, ICE was given exclusive 1811 authority to conduct investigations in the border region. CBP was only given so-called 1801 authority, a lesser classification that allowed Border Patrol agents and customs officers to make arrests and enforce federal law, but not investigate. They could be cops, but not detectives. This didn't particularly matter in the daily performance of CBP's duties. The borders were patrolled, the ports of entry watched, except that CBP was legally prohibited from policing its own workforce. Hmm. Yeah. And it's, again, one of these things every single person who's ever been involved in running the the CBP agrees like, yeah, this is a real big problem because it means that they're even less accountable than other law enforcement agencies. And those ones are barely accountable. And those ones are barely accountable. But like even when border patrol agents commit a crime that other border patrol agents think is horrible, like they can't investigate. (laughs) Wow. No accountability. Holy crap. Um, Yeah. hmm. Yeah. Other law enforcement agencies look at border patrol and go, Jesus Christ, those people are unaccountable when they commit acts of unspeakable violence. (laughs) That is bleak. That is very bleak. By 2012, uh, the problems in Border Patrol were obvious enough that they spilled out into the public sphere. The Arizona Republic conducted an investigation which showed that agents had killed at least 42 people, 13 of whom were citizens, since 2005. In none of these killings was any agent known to have faced consequences of any kind. Congressional pressure forced the agency to submit to an investigation by the Police Executive Research Forum, a Washington, D.C.-based law enforcement think tank. The PERF investigated 67 cases of lethal force by Border Patrol agents. They found, among other other things, cases of agents firing at fleeing vehicles. The report concluded, too many cases do not appear to meet the test of objective reasonableness with regard to the use of deadly force. The PERF report advised, among other things, that agents should not use lethal force on unarmed drivers or rock throwers. The agency rejected this out of hand, with the head of Border Patrol saying in an interview, I've known agents who have almost died from being rocked along the border, and I think it was completely ridiculous that they wanted that prohibition. 
I should note here that no Border Patrol officer has ever been killed by a rock, and I can't really find evidence of one being seriously injured by a rock either. What I can find is that, in 2014, CBP leadership estimated a full 20% of their force was corrupt. Attempts at reform were made in the last two years of the Obama administration, and in 2016, it looked like things might finally be headed in a less murdery direction. But then Donald Trump became the president, and... Here we are. A presidential administration filled with literal Nazis was handed a vast, heavily armed force of sociopaths and rapists who just spent the last two years being told that they had to rape and murder less, and then all of a sudden they were told, whatever you want to do is fine, just get these brown people out of the United States. And that's kind of where things stand today, with Mm -hmm. the Border Patrol as sort of the turning into the official armed wing of the, the racist right. Uh, with these CBP and BORTAC units set up using Border Patrol men being sent into American cities to police dissent uh, because they're the most dedicated and least accountable and most violent law enforcement uh, officers the country has. Um, And yeah, there's a lot more I could and should get into about where things are uh, at the moment uh, with Border Patrol, but Mm -hmm. this is... It took me this long just to get us up to the fucking Trump administration. Right. And yeah, we're not even at the, you know, the whole, the frenzy around yeah build the wall and just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I guess that's another podcast. Yeah, it's another kind of podcast. And I guess if I'm going to lead, leave somewhere I or, or, or in this somewhere, I probably it would probably be good to end by talking again about uh, Harlan Carter um, for just a little bit. Do you remember Harlan mm-hmm. Carter? He was the the former Border Patrol head who was in charge during Operation Wetback and who was a convicted murderer. He, in right. 1931, he shot a, a Mexican boy in the chest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, the, the young uh, Mexican boy that he murdered was named Raymond Cassiano. And there's actually a really good song about the Border Patrol and about Raymond Cassiano by a band I quite like called Drive-By Truckers. And there's a, there's a line in it about uh, Harlan Carter, you know, this former head of the Border Patrol, who goes on, by the way, to become the head of the NRA and is like one of the guys oh. in charge of the NRA when it turns into the NRA we all know today from the organization that was like, oh, people should learn how to shoot accurately so they can hunt deer, right? Like the NRA Mm -hmm. used to just be like a normal, pretty normal thing. And then it Mm -hmm. turns into this crazy thing that it is today, this quasi-military, or not quasi-military, but like this explicitly fascist uh, organization urging uh, political violence. Anyway, Harlan Carter is the guy behind that too. So not somebody we'd want to get a drink with. Not somebody you'd want to get a drink with. And there's there's a couple lines about him in this song, Raymond Cassiano, which is named mm-hmm. after the, the guy that um, uh, Harlan Carter killed. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's a song yeah, really about not just Harlan Carter, but about the kind of men who become Border Patrol agents. Mm-hmm. Um, he had the makings of a leader of a certain kind of men who need to feel the worlds against him, out to get him if it can. Men whose trigger pull their fingers of men who'd rather fight than win, united in a revolution, like in mind and like in skin. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good song. Mm-hmm. I'll give it a listen. So, Caitlin, you want to you wanna plug your pluggables? Sure. <laughs> Well, thank you for for enlightening me with this information. A lot of it I did not know, um, so I I appreciate now knowing. Um, depressing and upsetting though it may be, it's good to be informed. Um, 
you you can follow me on Twitter um, and Instagram at Caitlin Durante, and you can check out my podcast on this network uh, called the Bechtel Cast. So you know that little conversation that Sophie and I had at the beginning was a reference to that. We talk about the representation of women in film and um, yeah, check 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 it all out. Check it all out. And you can follow Robert on Twitter at IWriteOkay. You can follow this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at BastardsPod. You can now email us at BehindTheBastards at iHeartMedia.com. And you can buy merch at our Tee Public store. You can also buy merch from Caitlin and Jamie's Tee Public store, which has some of my absolute favorite items in the entire planet. Feminist How- icon. How's that for a plug? That was great. Thank you, Sophie. Feminist icons. You know who else is a feminist icon? I can't wait to see who you say. Caitlin Durante. (gasps) Thank you. All right. This ended very, 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 very (laughs) warmly. (laughs) Thank you. That's That's the episode. Bye, guys. That is the motherfucking episode. Bye. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.